Good morning to you all. <clears throat> we'll be in Second Chronicles 27 this morning. Second Chronicles 27. This time we get to explore a good king. That's exciting. Nice uh, break in the midst of a lot of wicked kings, one after another. And yet, this king is so quickly dealt with in Scripture that I suspect many of you, if not most of you, have never heard a sermon or, or lesson on this king's life. It, perhaps you did if you went through all of the kings of Israel at some point in the past. But this is a lesser known individual. So let's pray and commit our way to the Lord this morning. Father, we're thankful that you do not pass over any of our lives. While we are not well known in this world, and and certainly will never have the uh, temporal accolades that so many in uh, and around us in this world uh, possess, we are known intimately and personally by the only one who really matters, and that is the God of heaven. Thank you that you have called us by your name. You have given to us a new name, Revelation tells us, that you have uh, called us to be your children and made us your adopted ones so that we reign with Christ. And that is great hope and encouragement in the midst of not just the uncertainties that we face in life, but sometimes as we consider our lives, we wonder what's the point, what's the purpose in a life as insignificant and small as ours are. And this passage today is a good response to that. So may you provide hope and encouragement for your people and cause us to walk in the way of faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our world doesn't think much of people who don't have their names put on monuments, written on stars and sidewalks, or that are constantly in the media. And yet, the bulk of our, us find ourselves exactly like that. Hardly anyone knows of us. Hardly anyone knows that we exist. And when we finally pass, uh, there won't be a huge number of people that mourn us. Some, our family, our close friends. But it's not going to appear in the New York Times or on CNN or Fox News. Then again, our world doesn't have a great track record of valuing what's valuable. It tends to value what's insignificant in God's eyes. So today's lesson guides us to think a little bit differently about fame and renown. And the fact of the matter is that small lives, simple lives, lived before the Lord and lived by faith are vastly superior to all the wealth and fame that the world accumulates. So let's turn our attention to 2 Chronicles chapter 27. I read the first nine verses. Actually, that's the whole chapter. It's one of the shortest chapters um, in the entirety of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And Chronicles in particular is renowned for having long chapters, and yet nine short verses on one man that God reflects on. Jotham was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. So he died at... 41. It's not particularly old. It's not particularly significant. And it's, his reign is not particularly long. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done, except 
he did not enter the temple of the Lord. But the people still followed corrupt practices. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord and did much building on the wall of Ophel. Moreover, he built cities in the hill country of Judah and forts and towers on the wooded hills. He fought with the king of the Ammonites and prevailed against them. And the Ammonites gave him that year a hundred talents of silver, ten thousand cores of wheat, ten thousand of barley. The Ammonites paid him the same amount in the second and the third year. So Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all his wars and all his ways, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and Jotham slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. I like the tempo of this passage. I like it because without a passage such as the one we have in front of us today, we could not find a certain kind of encouragement that God gives to us. Because God could have taken a 16-year reign of a righteous man and expanded it and making it three, four, five chapters. I mean, there had to have been things that Jotham did since he walked in the ways of Uzziah, his father, since he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. There had to have been things that he did that in some sense were worth recounting. But God recounts him in the simplicity and summarization of a normal, ordinary life. Oh, yes, he was a king, but in some senses a hyper-ordinary king. A normal, ordinary life, such as the lives that we ourselves live and lead. And that is an encouragement to us and a, a warning to us to live life in a particular way. When many people think of French fries, they imagine a huge basket of golden goodness. Others see a generous pile of crispy carbohydrates perched beside a hamburger or maybe chicken strips. But they have it all wrong. French fries are a perfect opportunity to work out your inner organization. To eat French fries properly, you need to line them up in order by length and eat them from shortest to longest. Is anybody else there? Please let there be one. No one. Okay, sorry. Well, that's me. Um, I, I don't do it on purpose. I just do it. And my family noted it years ago. They're like, seriously? And I went, what? We're just sitting there at Wendy's. You know? They're like, seriously? You lined up your french fries again. And I go, oh, so I did. <laughs> Look at that. Collectively, we represent the entire spectrum from free-spirited, free-form people who don't want structure or organize anything under the sun to those of us who organize our closets by color and type of article of clothing and sometimes even by the fabric that they're made out of. The order that we see in the natural world or even in our own habits has far less significance than the order and disarray we see in spiritual life. Most of our world lives in spiritual chaos. Have you noticed the kind of ethical decisions that are around you? 
My youngest daughter had her first forensics tournament yesterday. It's speech and debate, high school stuff, okay? And she went there, and she came home a little bit crestfallen. I mean, you always hope you, you win and things like that. I'm like, well, you're a novice. This is your first speech ever, and you've you got to work your way up. I said, I couldn't speak at all when I was in high school. I was in the realm of atrocious my first entire year. I was in the realm of really bad my second entire year. And yet, by junior and senior years, uh, qualified for nationals in extemporaneous speaking. He says, so the Lord has a lot of building that he has to do in our individual lives. But her main comment that she came home with is, Dad, you, uh, the speeches that people give. Her, her area is in declamation, which means you're supposed to go find an actually existing published speech of some sort. It could be a TED's talk, or it could be some political figure giving a speech. And at that level of novice, you don't have to memorize it yet. You actually have it printed in front of you. And then you're supposed to be dramatic and bold about your speech and hopefully pick a topic that's really interesting. Fortunately, she said the person who did win had an interesting topic, and it was really engaging and worthwhile. But she goes, a lot of the things I had to listen to were horrible. The speeches that they picked were on the morally depraved agendas that are all around us in the world today, and they think that that is cool and trendy and worth being spoken at in a high school speech tournament? She was somewhat horrified by it. I said, well, that is our world. Absolute moral chaos. The ethical decisions are not really ethical decisions at all. They don't care about ethics. All they care about is a veneer of ethics, as long as I can pretend like I was ethical, as long as I acted like I cared. I just had to do a discussion post for a a, a human resources class that I'm in right now, and it was exploring some of the diversity things uh, that are occurring around us and how we have to follow EEOC, so Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, rules to hire all the right people so that we don't get in trouble with the government. And in the midst of one of the posts, I ran across an article that was exploring some of the the ethicality even that goes on in human resources. And it says, you know what? (laughs) None of these companies care. It says all the, the woke stuff that goes on is all about virtue signaling. None of them care. It's all about pretending. Like It says, well, first of all, you can't do woke and actually care about virtue at all. That, that is mutually exclusive. So I could say from a moral, an actual moral standpoint of a moral philosopher, I can tell you, no, they don't care about virtue at all. But even within their own deluded world, they don't care about virtue. They do it to make money. Or they do it to be cool and trendy in the corporate world. And these are secularists exploring the reality of that, admitting on the one hand, and then studying the phenomenon of the other, of virtue signaling, and we don't really believe anything. That is the chaos of our world. We lurch from one outlandish assertion of what is ethical and right to another with no rhyme or reason behind the purported morality, no stable base. And the louder we insist on our own way, the less coherent our choices become. Often the loudest voices in the world have the greatest effect and have the least to say. Real wisdom is drowned out by obscurity. Real wisdom is drowned out because it's completely unknown. And because of it, we begin to wonder if walking with the Lord even matters at all. And so today's text enters into our life and gently reminds us, because simple faith 
and faithfulness. The kind of faith and faithfulness that that we can engage in. It's not the faithfulness of a great orator evangelist who wins 50,000 people to Jesus. I don't have that kind of faith and faithfulness. It's not the faith and faithfulness of of a renowned missionary who gives his entire life on the field, although we actually have some of those in our midst, even here today. What about my kind of ordinary faith and faithfulness, the the daily walk with the Lord, the the simple decisions of life. The scripture tells us because simple faith and faithfulness produces outsized effects, order your ways before the Lord. Ordering your ways, that's actually laying out the pattern of life, the decisions that I make today, the choices, the plans, the preparations of my heart, order them before the Lord conscious that I'm in his presence. And so what I am doing right now needs to align with his will. And it has outsized effects. The passage begins this theme by showing us that simple faithfulness influences other people for good. And right off in verse 1, we already have the fact that the faith of parents or grandparents affects children. If we aren't careful, we can miss the significance. In verse 1, God not only names Jotham's mother, but also his grandfather, Zadok, whose name, by the way, means... Hebrew people, as Dr. Yegley in our midst, he would know. Zadok is Sadak, which is Hebrew for righteousness. Now, this is not Zadok the priest, Back in David's day, okay, this is this is hundreds of years after David. But whatever her grand, uh, Jotham's grandfather was, he was known, and his name even is righteousness. Righteousness, and then his mother comes along. We don't know anything else about these characters other than what's recorded here, but there may be a possible contrast with other kings prior to this point and the unfolding of the kings and chronicles, okay? We're going to see a little bit of a change after Jotham, but prior to this point in the text of kings and chronicles, in every case where the scriptures name both the mother and grandfather, the king was righteous. Interesting fact. I don't know whether the Lord was doing that, so we would notice a little detail like that and draw it to our attention. After Jotham's day, as we ran into the very last few kings of Judah, their genealogy is recorded in greater detail, probably because the chronicler himself had access to lots of facts on the later kings when he didn't have access to lots of facts on the earlier kings. But nonetheless, in the earlier kings, the only time we have grandfather and mother, so the mother's So his paternal grandfather, the only time we have him named is when the king was righteous. Again, that will change with Ammon and the rush of the kings leading up to uh, Judah's destruction by the Babylonians. But it seems that the chronicler is pointing to the fact that a mother's influence and even a grandfather's influence has a significant, long-reaching effect. Eighteen kings had no mother mentioned at all. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, unite them all together, all the kings that existed. Eighteen of them had no parent, no mother mentioned, I should say. Father, yes, no mother. 
All 18 were wicked. Women, does that give you any kind of hope and encouragement? I mean, seriously, some of you have chosen to give your lives to your children. You chose to pour into them. You, again, you weren't renowned. You weren't seeking to climb a corporate ladder, which if the Lord appoints that for you, fine. So be it. But I'm talking today about what the passage is talking about, and that is the simplicity of ordinary faith and faithfulness to God with outsized effects. And your influence on a child or children and grandchildren can be profound. Huge. Your children and grandchildren may do things that you you almost couldn't even dream of for the glory of God and the gospel. I've told this before, but my my grandmother lived with us even there up, up where we are right now until she was almost 100 years old and died there on our property. And routinely, in the last few, five, six, seven years of her life, when she really couldn't get out anymore at all, couldn't go to the grocery store, couldn't go to church, anything like that, she was just too feeble, she'd get a little down on the dumps. Like, I don't know why the Lord's left me here. Maybe he doesn't like me either. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, probably. (laughs) No, I didn't tease her that way. (laughs) But I said, well, Grandmother, what, what have you been doing today? Oh, nothing important. Okay, well, just talk, walk me through it. Well, I got up, and for the first uh, hour, I read my Bible, and then for the second hour of the day, I prayed. Prayed for whom? Oh, she's, she whacked you. I mean, all the way up to when she died, she'd hit you on the shoulder, and it hurt. I'm like, there's like there's some kind of a, you know, she's got it. She'd hit you on the shoulder, and then be like, oh, stop it. Always pray for you. You know that. I'm like, hmm, Interesting. No good effect. I'm no good to God. And you, you pray for somebody who just happens to end up a seminary teacher? Who just happens to have effect for good in this world? That certainly doesn't. I mean, I look at my own life. Well, there's no way it came from me. I'm like, don't sell it short. Don't ever sell simple faith and faithfulness short. Because God can use you to have an effect on other people that, again, may reach far further than you ever dreamed you could. Maybe even then you could. The faith of parents or grandparents affects children profoundly. So I would like to give you a couple of charts, right? We like charts. Oh, that showed up way smaller than I thought it would. That's, that's the price you pay when you try to put too much data on one screen. But I want to give you a few details regarding these kings of Israel, things that are uh, highly relevant for us. So, of course, we have Jezebel, a wicked king, and so on. But look at the, look at the righteous ones. Here we are, here we are with Jotham, and it mentions his mother's name, daughter of Zadok. Okay, look at the big gaps where no mother was mentioned. The mother's names are in the second column. These are all the kings of Judah after or starting with Rehoboam. So these are the lesser kings. I didn't include Saul, David, Solomon on there. But all the lesser kings here. And look at the big gaps. And I tried to capture the fact that not only was the mother not mentioned, but the fourth, third, third column over is the moral status of the king, not of the mother, but of the king, and every single one is wicked. 
where the mother's influence was, was either negligible or wicked so that the Lord just scrubbed her off the pages of history. I'm not even going to talk about her. In every case, the king was wicked. We do have one instance in the entire scripture where a mother was wicked and her son turned out well, but that was because his father was a righteous man and the Lord intervened in his life, and that's the king Asa. And the scriptures specifically tell us he removed Maaka, his mother, from being queen mother because she built a horrid image for Asherah. We studied that. It's now, what, two years ago? So it's way back in our memory. Yeah, but we did look at it. But that's it. All the rest of this pattern shows us that a righteous mother's influence on a child's life is profound. And even a grandparent's influence on a grandchild's life is profound. So that where the daughter, or the mother rather, and the grandfather are mentioned over and over and over again, the king turned out well. Second, the faith of a leader affects those who follow. Verse 2. Can you look at that verse and and see how this actually seems disjointed with verse 2? What does verse 2 say that the people did? They still followed corrupt practices. And you have the audacity to get up here and make a point that the faith of a leader affects those who follow? It's the opposite! The faith of the leader did no good among the people of Israel. Uh, 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 Time out. How long did this king reign? Just 16 years. That's pretty short, isn't it? In, In light of the reigns of a lot of the other kings of Israel. And yet God is going to remove a righteous king after only 16 years. And the king who follows him, Ahaz, is going to be wicked. We've already referenced Ahaz's reign once. Because we saw that during Ahaz's reign, Pekah comes out of the northern kingdom and attacks Judah in the south, and we're dealing with Judah here, and kills 120,000 soldiers of Judah in one day, takes 200,000 captives and goes back to Israel. Interesting. None of that happened during Jotham's reign, but it happened as soon as he was off the stage of human history. The faith of a leader affects those who follow in several ways. Sometimes the faith of a leader actually brings people along with him. God allows that the leader's charismatism, but it's way beyond that. It has to be a spiritual influence. The leader's spiritual influence gathers people and brings them with him. Sometimes the effect, the effect of faith on those who follow is that they continue on in their wickedness and yet are preserved and protected because of your righteousness. And we have seen this recently. We dealt with it a little bit last week, but I'll remind you there are cities, nations, empires in human history that lasted as long as they did because of the presence of the righteous in their midst. The same righteous that the city wanted to destroy. The same righteous people that the city wanted to silence. The same righteous people who were called hostile, who were even considered treasonous at points, because they wouldn't go along with the wickedness that was around them. And yet the city's own existence was contingent on the righteous in their midst. 
Jotham actually had an influence and an effect on those who followed him, and it was the influence of salt and light in this world and an influence of retarding the decay that was already existing and prevalent. His influence was still profound. This reminds me of a passage in Scripture as well, not only that the people are following their corrupt practices, but a, pra- a passage that we see in Ezekiel twenty-two thirty. I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land. Look at what God himself says. First of all, he says, a man. He doesn't say repentance of the whole nation. I sought for a man who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found None. None. Given that testimony that we can range backwards and forwards in Scripture and again see the outsized effects of one individual, I think it's legitimate to conclude Ahaz's life protected Judah from a judgment that Judah, the nation, not not, uh, Jotham, I said Ahaz, sorry about that. Ahaz is wicked. Jotham is good. Jotham's life preserved Judah from a judgment that was warranted. And the Lord also brought Jotham to a a relatively short reign, although successful reign. Not because God was disappointed with Jotham, but because God was ready to judge the nation. And said, I'm not going to allow my righteous man to have to experience this kind of judgment. I will take him into my presence before I wreck and ruin his people. Jotham was the man for his age. Do you recognize the name Nils Bolin? Anybody know the name Nils Bolin? Nils Bolin was a Swedish engineer working for Volvo in 1958 when he came up with a revolutionary design that has saved literally millions of lives, the three-point seat belt. This major technological leap with a simple design, and that, that has to go together, you make a major technological leap, but it's either too costly or too complex actually to implement, then nothing happens with it. He made a major technological leap with a simplicity of design that immediately spread, became world-renowned, was adopted by virtually every car manufacturer, and the only ones who didn't, didn't do so because they have like a six-point star harness for race car drivers and things like that. But the rest of us are using the three-point harness, and again, Saving millions of lives. Anybody ever been saved in an accident because of a three-point harness? No, it's been in a serious accident? Yes, okay. So we have some even in this room. I've been hit from behind, though that would throw you backwards. I've also run into things from the front, and that throws you forwards. And a three-point harness, wow, what a difference. Airbags, of course, an additional advance. But the point was this. None of us recognize his name. I didn't either. You know what I had to Google to find this guy? Guess. I mean, because you think of what I'm looking to try to illustrate. No, I had no idea that the guy who invented the seatbelt was a, a nobody. I looked for who are nobodies that changed the world. <laughs> People that none of us would recognize their name. They're like, who is this guy? He's just a Swedish engineer for Volvo. Why would I know a Swedish engineer for Volvo? Why would I care? And yet, in the process of doing 
engineer for car type stuff. In, within his field, he was exercising faithfulness in small things, and he had outsized effects. Do you really think that in God's design, spiritual faith and faithfulness is less valuable than that? Or does God appoint for us the fact that when we continue walking with him, we can have outsized effects on other people, people that we know, people that we don't even know? This is what the scripture tells us. The effects of our faithfulness will stretch into eternity and may lead, if God tarries, to the salvation of many in the next generation or two or three or five or dozens of generations out there. Simple faithfulness also brings diverse success. Diverse success. It doesn't always take the exact same form from one person to another. But at least in our passage that we have in front of us, the the text tells us that there is a gain of spiritual expansion. What did he do? Jotham builds the upper gate. A gate is both for protection, protection of the people, protection of the temple and its treasuries, and it's also for the glory of God. So it worked for both beauty and protection of, Jew, of the center of Jewish's, Jewish religious life, basically, in the worship of God. Some gain additional security. The area of Ophel, say, what is he doing here? Well, he's expanding, he's building. He's building uh, battlements and towers, he's building fortifications in the hill country, but he also builds on the Ophel. So I'd like to show you and kind of describe this for you. The, the temple, this is a reconstruction of Jerusalem from the first century. You can actually see this in Israel. It's a huge model. The model itself stretches, it's about a little bit bigger than this room. The model of the whole city. Well, the Temple Mount is on the far right in this picture. You can just barely see the, a tall building there. That's not really the temple. That's the Temple Mount. And Herod built uh, all these, uh, ba- these massive stones pushed away from the crown of the city because uh, uh, the temple itself was built right on the top of a hill. Well, Herod goes out much further away from the hill when the, the hill slopes off, and he just builds a wall, and then he fills in all the space between the two, that kind of that triangle section, so that now the Temple Mount, the area up there is 30 acres. Today, it still is, 30 acres. Everybody that demolished the city is not going to pack up stones that are 14 feet long, 4 feet thick, and 7 feet deep. I mean, just, just leave them there. You demolish everything up on top, but the retaining wall is still there. So in Jotham's day, that retaining wall is not there. You still have the crown. The temple is right at the crown. And the Ophel is... Uh, let's rule out all the territory to the, the north of this because that was all built in later days. That was all built towards the first century. This was what Jerusalem looked like in Jotham's day. And Jotham was building up the region that is the saddle, the low point between the city of David and the temple. Okay? Now, if you mountaineers... You're looking at a, a big, big hill country, big range of mountains in front of you. What do you aim for? The valley. We call them sometimes valleys, saddles, gaps. The Cumberland Gap was such a major discovery. Why? Because 
At the time, they thought the Appalachian was quite the mountain chain until they got to the Rockies, and then the Appalachian got kind of diminished in people's estimate. But still, the Appalachian mountain chain chain prevented the settlement of the interior states. States like Tennessee and Kentucky. Fertile lands, a lot of people would love to get there, but they can't because the Appalachians block them. They need a gap. The gap then is also the easiest place for an army to attack. And how cool is it that this poor city of Jerusalem has all of its money, because the temple treasuries, people would put their money in the treasury and it would be armored and fortified up here. And their treasury is way over here, and then there's a saddle, a weak point, and then the rest of the city is over here. That's fantastic if you're an invading army. You cut them off, number one, from the treasuries, then you raid the treasuries and take all their money. This is going to work out real well. So Jotham recognizes this fact, and he builds up this saddle region, the Ophel, levels it out significantly and and begins backfilling it. By the way, it's the same kind of construction project that um, Solomon engaged in. So you have Solomon is wise over here, and the scriptures tell us he builds the millow. It's also that region. And millow itself just means refill or backfilling an area. And Jotham comes along and says, you know what, it still is a weak point. Let's continue our construction there with wisdom that God had given. So some gain spiritual expansion, some gain additional security. Some people are going to gain expanded power if God so ordains. What does the passage say about his power? Well, the Ammonites become his vassals. He doesn't have to go out and completely conquer the Ammonites. All he has to do is fight a significant enough battle that the Ammonites do not want him coming back and picking on them anymore. So they arrange a suzerainty vassal treaty in which they say, you know, as long as you promise not to come back and and wallop us again, we'll give you a certain amount of money and food each year. 10,000 talents of silver is approximately 120,000 ounces or $2.76 million dollars in today's money. So it means Ammon, a very small country, is giving Judah $2.76 million a year in just additional taxes, you might say. A core is about 230 liters. So 10,000 core would be 230,000 liters, which measures up to 65,000 bushels. Don't you love little stats like that? It's so much cool. I, of course, I have to get my calculator out because you get conversion ratios online. You've got to figure it out. 65,000 bushels of wheat and then 65,000 bushels of barley. That's a number that doesn't mean anything to me because I don't, I don't know. I just don't, I don't see in bushels. It's like, what, would 65,000 bushels fill this room? I don't know. I have no idea what that would look like magnitude-wise. So instead, I did another kind of calculation. I went out and found from global food source information, how many bushels of wheat does a person eat in a year? You eat about 2.2, unless you're gluten-free, bushels of wheat in a year. That means 65,000 bushels of wheat can supply approximately 30,000 people with all the food they need for a year. But wait, he got the same amount of barley, so now we're up to... 60,000 people's worth of food for an entire year, plus the $2.76 million, 
Life is good, because look, if we have food for 60,000 people coming into our country, that's 60,000 people's worth of food that our farmers don't have to raise for us to stay above starvation level. That's a good deal. And yet the scriptures don't record that Jotham was super extraordinary. How is it that in Jotham's reign, short reign, relatively insignificant reign, the surrounding nations are both at peace with him and subjugated to him so that money is coming in and food is coming in so that Judah is prospering? And the answer is the Lord is using the simple faith and faithfulness of the king to bring blessing on the whole nation. And he's expanding in lots of ways. Doesn't mean that God's going to pour a whole bunch of food in our backyard if we're faithful to him in that way. But whatever ways his blessing needs to take for us to prosper and flourish before him, it will. Third, simple faithfulness brings divine commendation, verses 6 through 9. God connects renown with obedience. I love this, verse 6. It's good. I, I, I'm like, this, I would love for this to be like emblazoned over my life, put on my tombstone, except maybe not that mighty part. I don't, whatever. But he became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. He ordered his ways before the Lord his God. That wasn't too grand a process to bite off. He didn't set out to conquer everybody around him. He just ordered his ways before the Lord, and God took care of the rest. He didn't set out to be a renowned individual. He just ordered his ways before the Lord, and God took care of the rest. So I looked about this word, ordering his ways before the Lord, in several places in Scripture, and I found the same word with the opposite outcome. Back in 2 Chronicles 12, 14, he did evil. He did not order his heart to set to seek the Lord. So one king orders his ways before the Lord, and God pours blessing into his lap. Another king does not order his ways before the Lord, and God brings retribution and judgment. And you can check the context and what happens to that king. Same concept with a different word in Psalm 50, verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly. And I'm like, yes, I found it in English. This has got to be the same Hebrew word. It's not. So same idea, but with a different word. But to the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Having laid hold of that, we have laid hold of all that is actually important. And here's the same word with the same concept. Ezra 7.10. Ezra ordered his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And Ezra is rather renowned, isn't he? Entire book bearing his name, same kind of faith and faithfulness. And the Lord demonstrating that when a person walks before me like this, I will bless him. So God connects renown with obedience. Okay? One negative example, same word occurs in Esther 6.4. 
Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had ordered for him. And the reason I want to put this illustration up in front of us is what does it mean to order my ways before the Lord? It doesn't mean building gallows, okay? But what, what is he doing there? To build a gallows of this altitude, this height, um, I believe it was 60 cubits, since a cubit is a foot, how high does he build this gallows? That's crazy. Why would you do Can you build a gallows that's 70, 80, 90 feet tall, just kind of like whipping a few boards together? I, I realized I was not destined to be a builder. One time when I was in my teens, and I went out and found a bunch of scraps of wood, and I thought, bridge over the creek. Because I grew up at a place where parents had a little creek, and I'm like, this is it. This is my opportunity. And I got these things out there and sawed and hammered. It was early teens. Okay, I grew up. (laughs) Nothing. There's no way you could put it together with that little bit. No, if you're going to build a bridge over a creek, you got to have a lot of resources. You have a lot of engineering behind that, especially if you're joining them end to end like this. And that's kind of a weak point if you step on it. You know, things are going to tear apart and you're in big trouble, which is kind of what happened. So to build a gallows of this magnitude, he had to prepare it extensively. There had to be an immense amount of intentionality. There had to be back planning, preparation, thought. Like, he's really going through some serious effort to hang Mordecai. And God says, order your ways before me. Not just kind of let life happen to you, but order your ways before me. I have this decision on the table right now, instantly in front of me. And maybe it wasn't a decision that I could even foresee coming. But now it's on the table in front of me. Most of us just, we make a judgment and we go on. Order your ways before me. Plan, prepare, think through. Is that decision really walking in righteousness before God or not? So there's a deliberate act to prepare or establish what we are doing with the consciousness of God's observing, noting, and judging. And God writes the remembrance. He writes the record of remembrance in verses 7 through 9. The scriptures say nothing negative about Jotham. Do you understand how significant that is? Try to think of characters in the Bible that the scriptures say nothing negative about. There are a few. But Abraham, no, actually it says some negative things about him. David, a man after God's own heart, plenty of negative said about him. Saul, lots. Solomon, uh uh-huh. Asa, he did what was wrong at a point. Uzziah, this guy's father, goes into the temple, 52-year reign, and because of it, he's an outcast to the day of his death. Very few people in Scripture have nothing negative said about him. Jotham does. Simple life, ordinary faithfulness, short reign, and God says, well done. Well done. God writes the record of remembrance, and God writes, essentially, well done over his entire life. He ordered his way to seek me. You do not need to be powerful, world-renowned, long-remembered by hordes of adulating fans. You need to be faithful. 
In the end, we discover that simple faithfulness was never simple at all. It was a path of wisdom and trust that took planning, forethought, dogged persistence. Simple faith takes effort. And yet it's exactly what the Lord intends for us. One of my favorite expressions of ordinary faithfulness comes from the old film, It's a Wonderful Life. I asked my wife if she thought it was okay. She's like, yeah, everybody loves It's a Wonderful Life. Okay, quick theological disclaimer. Hollywood got everything associated with the supernatural entirely wrong, as usual. Nonetheless, the film is a masterful depiction of the ripple effects of simple faithfulness, isn't it? Do you remember the part where he's going, I haven't done any good, there's no point, and he's like, and he, and he goes out and he's starting to see what would happen if he hadn't lived a life of simple faithfulness, one of which is his brother would have died, and because his brother would have died, his brother was a pilot in World War II who shot down a Japanese kamikaze right before it was about to plow into a troop transport. Without his brother, the troop transport was destroyed and every single, thousands and thousands of other people were killed. And he goes, huh, I guess I didn't have it so bad after all, <laughs> right? And, and you, we, we laugh at it and so on, but really reduce Hollywood trivializing something and, and getting theology wrong to a point of God does not trivialize or ever get theology wrong and doesn't he say the same thing? but with his power behind it. You live a life of simple faithfulness, and there will be outsized effects, some of which you may know about, some of which you may never know about until eternity. Jotham was a man who feared the Lord, who walked with him, and because simple faithfulness generates these kinds of amazing effects, you need to order your life before the Lord as well. Father, we're thankful for the testimony that we have today. Thank you that you don't call us to have to be dramatic and big. If you appointed for us tasks that were far too great for us, we would just stand here in despair knowing that there's no way I can measure up to that. If you demanded that we move mountains, that we pick up weights that are impossibly heavy, we would, again, be, be despairing. If you told us we had to evangelize 50,000 people before we died, we, we would just pale because we have no ability to do these things. But we can live faithfully. We can order our ways before you this day. And in the simplicity of that faith and belief that you are watching and you are always just and good and in the power of our Savior Jesus Christ worked out with the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can walk before you in a way that pleases you. So bless us this week in our ordinary labor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.